I'd say that, if anything, we're probably only starting to brush up against the edges of scenarios that I would describe as leaving insurers less well prepared for. So things like a combination of it. So to the extent that we don't get the coronavirus largely under control in the U.S., or we see a major reemergence later this year or next year, or mortality escalates, or, you know, alternatively, there could be other shocks like a major hurricane event or terror event. From our remote offices in the New York Tri-State area, welcome to No More, Risk Better the Credit Sites Podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We're living in a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across the global credit markets. I am Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I'm here with Josh Estros, our senior U.S. insurance analyst. Hi, Josh. Welcome. Hey, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me on. The insurance industry is at its core about risk. There's so many individuals and business sectors that are impacted by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. How do you think of COVID-19 across all these insurance sectors that you cover? Yeah, I mean, you're certainly correct. So I cover life, PNC, and health. And I think for the purposes of this podcast, probably limit my commentary to life and PNC, but there's certainly different implications depending on if you're a life insurer or a PNC insurer or a health insurer. And I think a lot of folks out there are kind of doing similar exercises to what we're doing. And that's basically triaging the insurers that we cover into who is more or less at risk. So really, it starts coming down to who's checking off the most boxes in terms of exposure to COVID-19. And that's either from a claims perspective, an investment portfolio perspective, balance sheet perspective, what have you. So it's a lot of triaging that goes in there. So from a claims perspective, you really need to divide it up by the type of insurer. So if you're a life insurer, for example, and you have a lot of exposure to variable annuities that are guaranteeing certain levels of returns on the equity markets, or you have universal life product with crediting rates that you're guaranteeing to policyholders, or you have particularly long duration insurance liabilities like long-term care, for example, you know, those are highly dependent on the rate environment, things like that. For PNC insurers, you know, there's a surprising number of lines of business that could be impacted. So most immediately, business interruption has been in the news a lot lately, event cancellation, traveler insurance, workers' compensation, trade credit, you know, to some extent, surety, directors and officers, all of those could see elevated levels of claims activity. You know, if you're a mortgage insurer, too, you could really be in trouble if government forbearance efforts don't prove as supportive as some would have imagined. And then from an investment portfolio perspective, you know, both life and PNC insurers are definitely at risk here. The types of things we're looking at includes who has more exposure to hard hit sectors within the corporate bond portfolio. So like energy, retail, lodging, who has the most exposure to either recent or potential fallen angels given that downgrades within the investment portfolio can reduce regulatory capital levels. So we've done a lot of deep dives into mortgage exposure, real estate exposure, equity, private equity, hedge fund, all these types of slicing and dicing on the investment portfolio front. So, you know, it's basically the short version of your answer is there's risk across the board and you got to kind of dive deep to figure out who's more or less at risk. So Josh, you've put the range of risk perspectives on, and certainly there's a lot of uncertainty, not just in the insurance sectors, but across the corporate landscape regarding how this pandemic, the policy actions, and of course, the social response is going to pan out. But at a high level, where are you comfortable in the space? And then maybe drill in to reveal a couple of credits to put this in perspective. Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you're talking and looking for comfort in the insurance space, I'd say I'm most comfortable with the auto and home insurers. So they're going to see new business disruption, certainly, and there's going to be some extent, you know, investment portfolio pressure. But on the benefit side, on the claims payment side, basically, they just have to wait out the crisis. So if you think about it, miles driven way down, folks sheltering in place, staying at home, that significantly reduces the likelihood of an auto claim liability. And then 
in support of that, if you're also a home writer, there's a lot of correlation between folks staying at home, maintaining the home, lower degree of claims payment associated with that under ordinary circumstances. So insurers like Allstate Progressive with major focuses on those markets, they're going to ride this out way better than most. On the life insurance side, if you're looking for safer credits, probably the supplemental insurers. So folks like Aflac, where again, very limited claims exposure, or if you're looking for bigger names, names like MetLife, where there's a focus on higher margin group national account size customers, where you know if the projections for mortality associated with the pandemic or even in the ballpark of being correct, they're going to manage through this just fine. And then there's opportunities towards the shorter end of the curve for some insurers with more hair attached to them, like Unum, for example. There's certainly going to be losses for long-term care insurance over the longer term, just from the lower rate environment. But you know, this is like an example of an insurer really well capitalized and at the short end of the curve, probably decent value. Well, you know, if you compare this to global financial crisis, the insurers are significantly impacted by those events due to the asset exposure, you know, due to the, the product categories or liabilities. Could you talk about the similarities and differences between the crisis that we're currently seeing with COVID and then what happened during the financial crisis? Sure. So one of the interesting things about insurance companies is in some respects, you know, they're the originators of big data. I'd say that current market conditions, and even at the nadir of the market, they're certainly not outside the scope of lessons learned from previous crises and, and previous pandemics, and not outside the scope of risk management practices you know, for a lot of the marquee insurers. So there's meaningful parallels you know, from equity market disruption, credit market disruption, to a shock unemployment scenario relative to the financial crisis, so parallels there. And like with the financial crisis, I think a lot of folks might be surprised at how much damage from recent market turbulence could be absorbed through their hedging practices, which I'd say have only become more sophisticated since the financial crisis. Now, certainly going forward, hedging is going to be more expensive and more challenging to implement. Margins are lower, adverse reserve development more likely. So it's not like some free and clear, easy scenario. But I'd say that if anything, we're probably only starting to brush up against the edges of scenarios that I would describe as leaving insurers less well prepared for. So things like a combination of events. So to the extent that we don't get the coronavirus largely under control in the U.S. or we see a major reemergence later this year or next year, or mortality escalates, or you know, alternatively, there could be other shocks like a major hurricane event or terror event. Point being, it's the combination of kind of multiple scenarios, multiple events, claims activity, investment losses over a prolonged period. That's when it gets really highly problematic for the industry, but it's probably just outside the base case at the moment. Well, you're talking uh, a bit about that this time is different, and that's a theme that I discussed with Jesse Rosenthal on his Banks podcast for episode two. You know, maybe for some of our listeners that didn't go through the global financial crisis, or even just to put this into context, you know, could you talk a little bit about that severity of stress that we did see in the GFC? Maybe what some of the causes of it were? You know, AIG was certainly a bellwether case of it. What was the root cause of some of the damage that we saw the last time we experienced a crisis? Yeah, sure. So like I was mentioning earlier, I'm not going to harp on this again, but hedging was certainly less sophisticated then. And while scenario planning at the time of the GFC, it, it certainly included the potential for significant economic downturns. I think the extent of the GFC was outside the scope of ordinary risk management practices from insurers. And not to mention, like you brought up with AIG, there was all that questionable CDS writing activity going on at the holding company level. And, and that's a thing of the past as well. So Back then, we saw a bunch of these marquee insurers like AIG, Lincoln National, Hartford. They either had to take bailout funds, TARP funds, raise equity, sell warrants, some combination there. But now planning for economic contractions of at least the magnitude of the global financial crisis are commonplace. They're just common practice. And we're not really expecting any of the leading insurers to be in that type of immediate liquidity and solvency distress that was generated during the financial crisis. And there's going to be pockets of insurers. There's weaker insurers out there where 
which were probably even at risk prior to this market turbulence. And, and so certainly they're at risk, but by and large, the financial planning framework has, has significantly improved since 10 years ago. That brings us to what insurance balance sheets look like now or in the near-term future. And certainly on the asset side, you have the corporate complicated portrait of rates and returns. On the liability side, there's likely to be above trend impact on claims. Yeah, definitely. There's going to be simultaneous pressures on the balance sheet. So first, and, and this is a, a little bit complex, but it, it's important to be aware that insurers file two sets of financial reporting. So your typical gap reporting statements, but also what's known as statutory financials, the, the books that they submit to state insurance regulators. So that's similar, but not identical to GAAP. And most investors and rating agencies are going to focus on the GAAP balance sheet, but the cash flow distribution ability of an insurer, that's actually governed by the statutory financial. So their ability to move cash from the operating company level up to the parent where the debt and equity resides. So I'll try to separate my commentary a little bit between them. So on the GAAP balance sheet, a lower rate environment translates to a lower discount rate applied to liability. So that raises the liability side of the balance sheet. And then under more ordinary circumstances, I'll call it, you know, most of that increase in the liability side of the balance sheet is offset by an increase in the mark-to-market value of the investment portfolio, which given how heavily weighted it is towards fixed income, a lower discount rate can increase the value of those assets. But what we're seeing under in the very recent past is you have a, a lower rate environment coupled with bond pricing basically getting closer to pre-COVID levels, but still lower. And, and that translates to spread widening and lower bond prices. You're not getting that offset on the asset side of the balance sheet. So meanwhile, insurers that are already seeing or highly likely to see downgrade activity within their own investment portfolio. So when you get a downgrade within the investment portfolio, the regulators assign a higher capital charge on that investment being held. And that can translate to lower regulatory capital, which translates to, again, lower ability to distribute capital from OPCO to the parent level. So then from a claims perspective, increases in expectations for insurance claims payouts, those increase the reserve line item on the liability side of the balance sheet. So that reserve position can be negatively impacted by expectations of claims, expectations of legal defense costs, and that's particularly applicable to PNC insurers. The point being, certainly pressure both asset side and liability side of the balance sheet from ongoing conditions. All right, let's talk about the upstream capital distribution component of it. You know, if you look at across the corporate landscape, we're seeing an elevated focus on liquidity. Investors, rating agencies, you know, they're going to take liquidity improvement over leverage. You know, what is, you know, it's a little bit different, but what does that look like for insurers? And then following from that, you know, the regulatory overlay in terms of what is the ability to upstream capital distributions. But could you speak to what parent liquidity looks like right now? Yeah. So the ability for an insurer to send capital up to the holding company from the operating company level, that's restricted by state insurance law. But there's actually some good news here. So basically all of the marquee life and PNC insurers, you know, at least the ones that we cover, they're in reasonable to good shape from a liquidity perspective. So 2020 just kind of so happened to be a year of well below average debt maturities. So there's only a handful of insurers with, let's say, more than a billion of debt coming due over the next 12 months. And then beyond that, parent company liquidity is almost always has, can be bolstered with their existing access to revolvers or commercial paper programs. And for most of the marquee names, that's sufficient, you know, for the major players. Still, there's going to be some insurers who struggle more than others in navigating this ongoing crisis. You know, they're going to have to make some difficult decisions about whether or not to maintain repurchase programs, maintain dividend programs. And we suspect that many insurers, at least out of an abundance of caution, will pause these activities. And in fact, from the few insurers that are reported, you know, as of the time that we're kind of chatting here, share repurchases by and large, but not entirely, have been slowed. 
So in the PNC space, I'd say it's actually fairly common to halt repurchase activity in the wake of like a hurricane or other catastrophe event. So we'd be actually surprised to see most insurers respond contrary to that common practice. Along the edges, and, and maybe this isn't so much a liquidity story, but from a regulatory capital perspective, some of the mortgage insurers and, and insurers particularly exposed to variable annuity-like products, they're probably most at risk from either a, a valuation or, or at least let's call it like a forward liquidity outlook, depending on how the coronavirus situation develops is how I would categorize all this. Okay. Well, let's turn to liability side. Obviously, there's some real impacts from this pandemic. You've talked about claims activity and how insurers are positioning their responsibilities. I know you and Charlotte Chung, our legal analysts, have looked into business interruption coverage for the PNCs. But we've also seen a political element here, statements from politicians, including the president, saying that insurers should pay. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, President Trump did recently make remarks suggesting that he feels that business interruption coverage should apply to the pandemic situation. And to your point, some state legislatures have at least explored legislation that could require insurers to pay business interruption claims, at least for those smaller businesses, so 100 employees or less, regardless of policy language. And there's a lot of moving parts here, but first and, and foremost, insurance is governed by the states, not the federal government. So actually, President Trump has limited ability to impose will here. And second, and here's what you're going to hear all the industry argue, is that most business interruption policies are really quite clear with the language. In order for business interruption to trigger, there needs to be physical damage to a facility. And that's generally interpreted to mean something like a fire, flood, hurricane, tornado, something that causes visual physical damage. You know, and, and for better or worse, these insurers aren't dummies. You know, they were well informed by what could have been much worse breakouts of SARS, MERS, Ebola, or, or other communicable type diseases. And as such, a, a significant percentage of the policies have specific exclusions for pandemics and communicable diseases. And from a contract law perspective, it, it's very difficult for the coronavirus in and of itself to be a clear trigger. Now, with that said, some policies actually do explicitly include communicable disease coverage. So there are going to be payouts to be made, but by and large, insurers will fight tooth and nail to oppose any kind of retroactive adjustments to their contracts and their policies. So ultimately, we expect that the claim situation here is going to be manageable. We don't expect state legislative efforts to, to succeed broadly. And that's, you know, insurance law is usually informed by the state insurance regulators who suggest insurance law to the legislatures. But in this case, it's the legislatures themselves proposing the laws here. And notably, the state insurance regulatory agency is, has come out against these proposals. So to date, nothing's really been implemented. Our base case is that insurers aren't going to be forced to pay regardless of policy language. And to the extent they did, it, they'd immediately litigate. Now, with that said, just receiving a claim comes with an expense attached to it. And if you have to defend not paying in court, that has another expense attached to it. But ultimately, you know, if you think about it, it, it's kind of untenable for the industry to pay all these business interruption claims across the country. It actually threatens to erode the entirety of the claims paying resources of the commercial PNC industry at a, at a pretty quick clip. Um, and that would leave them unable to pay claims resulting from like hurricanes or any other event in the foreseeable future. Just paying out, you know, correlated risks across the country is not the PNC insurance industry model. It's not designed to do that. And they'll fight against it pretty aggressively. Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen retail, hospitality, and travel industries, you know, curtailed down to near zero activity. It'd be hard to see the ability to pay out uh, across all of those industries. Let's talk about the first quarter earnings, and I appreciate you taking some time in the midst of those. But what are some of the topics that management teams are talking about? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is certainly what to expect going forward, because as I'm sure everyone recalls, we really only saw a significant uh, influx of, let's call it pandemic fear 
towards the tail end of the first quarter. So that has a couple of different implications. So from a claims perspective, really wasn't much time for anything to come through to the PNC insurers. It takes time for business owners to determine plans and, and courses of action, and, and that includes filing an insurance claim. And on the life insurance side, there's there's a friction period as well. So you know, to the extent that individuals experience mortality events and loved ones have to file claims, you know, there's certainly a tragic human cost behind that, but that takes time to file the claim. And ultimately, if the projected mortality count is in the ballpark of realistic, it's probably not enough to move the credit needle for the industry. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of the claims are likely to be second quarter events. So at the same time, insurers do need to adjust reserves to reflect best expectations of claims payouts and liability positions. So if you're a life insurer guaranteeing a certain rate of return, for example, on equity markets or account values, you know, you're going to see reserves move higher there and maybe some offset on the downside from hedging activity. But that's, you know, insurer by insurer. A lot of the conversation on the PNC side has been focused on where are the pockets of exposure? You know, is that business interruption, surety, DNO, a lot of these other lines of business that we talked about earlier? Workers' compensation, uh, a lot of the state legislatures have shifted into what's known as presumption that you acquired uh, contracted COVID through the course of employment rather than having to prove it. So a lot of the focus has been on, A, where are claims going to come from? And B, how well positioned is your investment portfolio? How high quality is it? Because we've seen the unrealized gain in the loss position obviously deteriorate significantly, but a lot of the management teams are also pointing to the fact that the books closed on March 31st and there's been a meaningful level of recovery since then. So first quarter, I'd say very much kind of a setup period before most of the real damage flows in through the second quarter and potentially third quarter as well. Let's talk about what about some of these actions by insurers to provide rebates to customers? Does that just layer on the losses? I'd say not really, actually. So insurers are, are all sort of doing the math as to how friendly they need to be to policyholders. And so there's some part altruism, there's some part public relations and some part actuarial math. So if you look at where the sizable waivers or premium reductions or however you want to call them are coming from, it's basically been from auto insurers primarily. Now there's exceptions there, but if we take that for starters, people are driving less. And with all these stay at home orders, that's just naturally going to translate to lower claims activity. So insurers don't need to collect the same level of premiums to maintain underwriting profitability. So in the first quarter, we basically saw record strong margin for auto and home lines from the insurers that are reported so far. And if I'm going to estimate based on the insurers that have reported so far, it looks like approximately a little less than half of the decline in claims activity has been offered back to policyholders and rebates. So miles driven were down like 90% in certain geographies in April, and, and some insurers are offering 20% rebates. So that's sort of how I frame it, but I'll probably let everyone else opine on, on their own with what percentage was actuarial math and what percentage was altruism and, and public relations. Now, there have been some efforts from commercial PNC insurers and life insurance companies for premium rate, either waivers or deferrals, but these are temporary measures. And, and I'm sure they would much rather retain the customer for another 20 years if you're a life insurer, for example, rather than let an otherwise healthy policy end up lapsing over some short-term inability to pay only to have that customer renew with a competitor, you know, six months down the road. So, you know, customer acquisition costs are, are one of the biggest cost drivers for both life and PNC insurers. So the premium rebates have some degree of strategy attached to them. But again, I'll leave it to everyone else to kind of figure out the math versus altruism proportion. 
Well, thank you, Josh. You know, as we spoke about, it's the sector that's involved with risk, and we're certain to see a lot of risk out in the world right now. But as you've laid out, I think a pretty good case that uh, the insurers, as long as we don't see additional risk layering on, uh, with this, this is within the scope of what they're able to manage, albeit with some amount of stress. So thank you, Josh. I'd love to have you back another time to talk about the the health side of things and perhaps with your other colleagues that uh, look at the pharmaceutical industry. But thank you for taking the time during earnings season. Yeah, I appreciate it. Look forward to coming back, I hope. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.